You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you that you must not oppose those who want to hurt you. If people slap you on your right cheek, you must turn the left cheek to them as well. When they wish to haul you to court and take your shirt, let them have your coat too. When they force you to go one mile, go with them too. Give to those who ask and don't refuse those who wish to borrow from you. You have heard that it was said, you must love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who harass you so that you will be acting as children of your father who is in heaven. He makes the sun rise on both the evil and the good and sends rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love only those who love you, what reward do you have? Don't even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing? Don't even the Gentiles do the same? Therefore, just as your heavenly Father is complete in showing love to everyone, so also you must be complete. Thanks, Hoss. open us up with a quote from one of my favorite theologians. You might recognize him, Mike Tyson. He said, everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. I've loved preaching out here in this parking lot. Uh, Sabrina Chan told me the other day, she's like, during pandemic, uh, everyone becomes uh, at first a televangelist and now a parking lot preacher. Uh, and so I've loved preaching out here, but I wish we had enough audiovisual capabilities for me right now to display a picture of Iron Mike Tyson just demolishing someone with his like sledgehammer right fist. It's got to be one of the best quotes ever. Everyone has a plan until they get punched in the face. The context, of course, for his quote is that each of his opponents feels really great leading up to a fight with him. They feel like they put in the meticulous training and that's all good and fine, except that all goes out the window. Once each and almost every single one of them was introduced to the harsh reality of the heavyweight champion of the world's not so secret weapon of a fist. It's almost like Jesus anticipated Mike Tyson's wisdom in his sermon on the Mount. Add Tyson's quote to the list of, you have heard it said, but now I say to you, that Jesus does over and over. And Jesus actually has a plan for himself and for us, his followers, when they get punched in the face. When we get punched in the face. None of us really wants to hear his plan, though. And that's to turn our face so that our other cheek is susceptible to another punch. Howard Thurman reminds um, of what a catch-22 this situation would have put Jesus' followers, Jesus' blessed, disinherited crowd. You see, if they hate their Roman enemy, if they kick back or, or react to this sort of harshness, they invite the wrath of Rome, powerful, mighty Rome, into their lives. And if they, quote-unquote, love them, It means they're a traitor to Jesus' own people, to Israel, to God. So Jesus, as Jesus does, artfully and costfully navigates this paradox. He says to the disinherited 
and this is a Thurman quote, love your enemy, take initiative in seeking ways by which you can have the experience of common sharing of mutual worth and value. It may be hazardous, but you must do it. Jesus is serious, but he is not giving us a strategy to win. Getting hit, I think we all know this at some level, getting hit either literally or metaphorically hurts. And turning your other cheek isn't a guarantee that it won't happen again. In fact, it opens you more up to it. Jesus is communicating then a concrete vision of the world in which we are stronger than we think and more capable of absorbing and withstanding hurt and insult, even like backhanded insult. That's a small detail in the text. It says if, Jesus says, if you get hit on your right cheek, and we have to assume in that culture as well as ours that most people are right-handed, so if you're getting hit on your right cheek, you're either getting hit by a, a softer left or a harsh backhanded right, which is adding certainly insult to injury. So Jesus is giving us a plan. He's crafting a vision. He's describing this kingdom world that he's seeing breaking in on our world that we think we know all too well, and he's giving us options. Jesus is giving us a plan for when, not if we get punched. That when we get punched in the face by a world that is cracked and tilted off its axis by sin and death and violence, but is being made right by God has been fundamentally altered by the life and death and resurrection and ascension of Jesus and the gift of the Holy Spirit. The world's different now. We believe that. At least on our good days, we believe that. But we often get frustrated. We get frustrated with this, this new story we're being given by Jesus. They seem, these plans seem so new, but they're not exactly new. They are from God. They're about God that Jesus is teaching. This taps back into Jesus' teaching that he didn't come to um, abolish the law, but to fulfill it. The law and the prophets, this covenantal way of living with God. Jesus images the the invisible God. We get that language from Colossians that we don't know what God looks like, but we actually kind of do when we see Jesus. And in Jesus' teaching, he imagines this nonviolent kingdom. The world is murderous and violent and brutal and vindictive and insulting, but God is not. And neither are we becoming. But we get frustrated. We get frustrated with God's nonviolence. We get frustrated that God has, not, has chosen not to hover over us. Not to manipulate, not to always or even sometimes seem present to violence in this world. So many of the Psalms argue with God. They say, God, wake up. Show up. Bear your mighty arm. Have you forgotten us? Basically, why are the jerks running amok around here, right? But God is both just and patient. God's mercy and God's wrath are often the same. 
in their timing is really curious to us. But on the cross, we get to see what it looks like when God has skin in the game. When push really comes to shove, how this 3D God might act. Won't he then push back? Surely his cheek has been turned too many times, but instead we see Jesus, the same one pronouncing blessings in the kind of pastoral, idyllic circumstances of his hillside classroom, then also pronounces blessings on the very ones who are murdering him. He says, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. I'm afraid that they probably kind of do know what they're doing is the thing. They're trying to humiliate. They're trying to erase Jesus. They have too small, too immediate imaginations. They couldn't see the God that's right in front of them. I fear the same is often true for us. How we are being formed to love, to desire, to hope. That's most of what all of this is about for us together. When we sing, when we hear, when we pray, when we gather around this table, we're being formed to love, to desire, to hope together in Christ. I'm, I'm concerned, though, with some of those malformations, how our imaginations are being shaped negatively, how it, our imaginations are limited in making us blind. I'm more and more convinced that we can be more shaped by how we think of and treat our enemies than how we think of and treat those who we already love, who it's already easy for us to love. We spend most of our time trying to love the people most close to us, and sometimes we even fail at that, but think about this radical call to loving our enemies. Think about if, if that's how God is, that means we are growing in our discipleship, growing in our Christ-likeness, if we are growing in our capacity to love people who hate us, who hurt us, who are different from us. That's the, that's the rubric, right? Our hearts and our desires need repenting and reshaping even on a good day. But the ways our fears and hatred shape us and motivate us and draw us away from being fit for the kingdom of God can't be understated. Try this thought on for size. What if our righteousness, what if how holy we are becoming will be graded exactly on the curve of what our enemies think of us? Try Try to do that inventory this week. Think of enemies in your life or maybe... They're not your enemies, but you're their enemies. And think about what they might say in, like, truth serum time about you, right? And, and, th- and maybe that's exactly who we are, is what our enemies say about us. I know my personal tendencies to try to ignore or to downplay this. I've been told that I'm an Enneagram 9. I'm not an aficionado, but I think that's some sort of, like, peacemaker synthesizer. This problem exists for other types of personalities and is like a kind of avoidance that can be a particular kind of privilege. I can detach out of sight, out of mind, it's all good. But the problem of pretending like you have no enemies 
is that it's not tapped into reality and leaves us out of some really vital, important, and proactive ways that we can see difference and that we can join God in healing and reconciliation. If I don't understand who my enemies are, I'm also probably ignorant of who views me as an enemy. Like it or not, they're out there. Do an enemy inventory this week. That'll be the best way for you to start to love your enemies. There's no virtue in pretending like we don't have enemies. Otherwise, the, most of the Bible would be disqualified. Israel has lots of enemies. The psalmists have lots of enemies. Jesus had enemies. The key is in showing love to everyone. Quote, unquote, showing love to everyone. This will make us, our passage today, in Jesus' words, this will make us complete. This will make us whole. This will make us perfect. This will make us like God. We will be perfected into folks who want what God wants and act like God acts and join God in the renewal of all things, even enemies, even ourselves. So all this means that we need to love in particular, love up close. So much of having enemies is involves having distance from others. Distance is better. Distance is safer. I don't even need to turn the other cheek from a distance because I can't even get hit. Brian Stevenson, the founder of um, uh, Equal Justice Initiative, um, has this great quote and does a lot of thinking about proximity. He says, when we get proximate, which is the opposite of distance, he says, when we get proximate to the excluded and the disfavored, you learn things that you need to understand if you're going to change the world. Our understanding of how we change things comes in proximity to inequality and to injustice and often to our enemies. Jesus' teaching doesn't abolish the old eye for an eye teaching. He intensifies it. He fulfills it. Jesus' words and example are of someone who sticks their nose in there, who picks sides. And spoiler alert, the sides that Jesus picks are always those beatitude sides. The poor, the poor in spirit, the, the meek, the humble, the peacemakers. And Jesus deals with the often violent consequences of picking these sides on his own body. The proof for this sort of ethic, this nonviolence, comes not in any guarantee that it'll make you feel good or that it'll disarm your opponents with shame. We like to think like this definitely works from Jesus because if I, if I kill someone with kindness, they'll become something different. You might get killed before they change, right? But so Jesus isn't giving us proof that this works. I think we all know that sometimes also it feels best to just like win or to get our jab in or to get the last word in it or to strike back or to save yourself and then tack on a late hit or two and the echo of the whistle, right, like in sports terms. Um, but the proof for living this way, why we should do it, why it's important, why it's true and good and beautiful, comes in the mystery of our faith. Christ has died. 
Christ is risen, and Christ will come again. Jesus' resurrected end, that isn't even really an end, it, it's continuous and ongoing, and it includes us, justifies his nonviolent means. By being raised from the dead, Jesus has broken the cycle of death and the fear that comes along with it that makes us so violent in a scarce world. And Jesus has opened up the door for us to follow him. There have been plenty of really interesting followers who have heard this call and taken up that challenge in their life and their context. Like I think of uh, one of my favorites, Diedrich Bonhoeffer, who has written extensively on the Sermon on the Mount in discipleship or the cost of discipleship. Go back and read that, but, but also know that that, that that was written and that came after he did this extensive uh, road trip through the American South into Mexico and spent time worshiping with Christians who were not like him, spent time worshiping in Mexican Catholic churches, spent time worshiping with Southern black Christians, um, and, and then he came and had his whole picture of what Christ was calling when Christ bids a man, he bids them to come and die, had it completely shifted and revolutionized by his proximity to people who were hurting or who were different. Or I, I think also of John Lewis, who famously gets in good trouble, and specifically the kind of nonviolent good trouble that has him wear his brightest white shirt because he knows he's about to get his nose bloodied, and that blood will look even better on that bright white shirt on Bloody Sunday. Or Oscar Romero, who was, who was killed while celebrating the Eucharist at Christ's table, inviting others to Christ's table, and his last words were, may God have mercy on the assassin. Or someone like Dorothy Day, who is, we've all seen that picture of Dorothy Day sitting serenely with, with all these armed policemen around her. And she's able to, to pray prayers that, like this prayer that she wrote in her journal, where she says, there is nothing we can do but love. And dear God, please enlarge our hearts to love each other, to love our neighbor, to love our enemy as a friend. So you see, there's all these different ways these faithful lives can hear these words and take up this call. How will you and I hear this kingdom call and take it up in our lives? How will we have a plan for when, not if, we get punched in the face? New plans for a nonviolent kingdom. How will we be, how will we be nonviolent this week in our speech? even when it feels like someone has been violent to us? How will, how will we teach our kids nonviolence? What, what, what will that look like for parents? What will that look like for the village, the community around us as parents, raising kingdom kids of nonviolence? And, and trust me, kids, for all the, the virtues that they seem to understand naturally in this world in terms of God's kingdom, I'm not sure nonviolence is the one. Like, kids are red in tooth and claw. Like, it, it is something they know well. But how are we going to shepherd that in nonviolence? How are we going to grow more and more nonviolent in our politics? And maybe this involves proximity. Maybe this in, involves uh, local politics even more than anything translocal or beyond local. 
And how are we going to be nonviolent in the ways we're shaping our desires with each other? Not because any of this work will shield us from suffering. and In fact, it might open us up to more suffering. It might make us more proximate to suffering. But because Jesus went first. And this is the way of the kingdom that is coming on earth as it is in heaven. Will you all pray with me? Jesus, we thank you for for these challenging words. They they seem impossible. But you've shown us that they are indeed possible. And by dying and by being raised by God's spirit and calling us into that resurrection life, that new creation, you've shown us that this is now how the world should be. Give us courage to to operate this way, to assume this, to uh, repent and believe your good news in our lives. Thanks for the examples of this nonviolent way, this great cloud of witnesses around us, historically uh, around the world, but also uh, in our lives right now, people who are learning gentleness, that fruit of the Spirit, who are learning how to be peacemakers, who you call your children. Thanks for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.